invite the rest of you to open your copy of God's loving word to the book of James, chapter 2. We'll start in verse 1 this morning. So if you are using one of the Bibles we provided for you there in the rows, it will be page 1011, 1011 of those Bibles we provided for you. And as you turn to James chapter 2, I want to invite you to imagine with me that you are sitting with me in a coffee shop in Medford, okay? Now, usually at least once a week, I'm going to be hanging at a coffee shop, and, and this coffee shop is usually, we'll call it Mystic Coffee Roasters, okay? Right here in Medford Square on Riverside Ave, okay? Shameless plug for my friend Sharon and everyone who works at Mystic Coffee, because I believe, and I know a little bit about coffee, it truly is the best coffee in Medford, all right? So you should check it out. But let's just imagine, if, if you will, that you're hanging out with me, all right? I know you're excited. And, um, and, and the place is packed because it's so good, right? And so, so as, as more and more people come into the store, we recognize that there's only one table that is open for all of these new customers. Now, what are we going to do as we encounter this flood of new customers coming in? I want you now to close your eyes for a moment, just, just for one moment, humor me, and I want you to, to picture these different customers that are coming in to the store. First, we have a young man who has a snapback on his head. Okay, that's a hat. It's a cool new hat for those of you who don't know. Okay, a snapback on his head. His, his pants are sagging a little lower than most people. Okay, he's all tatted up on his arms. He's got sleeves on both arms. That's tattoos. And he has piercings almost everywhere. This is one of the customers in line. The next customer looks like you, whatever you look like. You picture someone that, that you can kind of identify with, that, that, that dresses the way you dress. Perhaps they have the same color of skin that you have. They, they look like they come from a similar background as you. Now picture a third person. This person has a backpack on his back. It probably contains everything that he owns. His clothes are dirty. Perhaps these are the only set of clothes to his name, unless he has more in his backpack. And he comes in the store and is just hoping for a free cup of coffee or that some nice patron would buy him a cup of coffee because he didn't sleep very well last night. After all, he was sleeping under a bridge in Medford. And so he needs some, some energy, some caffeine to, to keep him up so he can go and look for work this day. Do you see these three customers? Now, I want to ask you a few questions. Who does your heart go out to? Is there one of these customers that you will naturally get up and offer your table to so that they can sit in your seat? Perhaps you would go even a step further. Perhaps there is one of these customers in particular that you would not only invite to come and have your table, but you would invite them to come and to sit down with you that you might converse with them and get to know them. And you can open your eyes. 
Which of the three customers were you most likely to go over and to engage and invite over into your presence? You see, James in our passage this morning is going to set up a very similar scenario, except his setting is not a coffee shop, but his setting is the gathered church that has come in for worship. And what James is going to exhort his scattered church is this, is that you cannot mix favoritism and partiality with faith. The two are mutually exclusive. So this morning I want to talk about partiality, neighbor love, and the glory of Christ from James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And as we study these 13 verses, I want to give one strong encouragement to us this morning, and that is this, to love your neighbor by destroying partiality and display the glory of Christ. You got that? Love your neighbor by destroying partiality and display the glory of Christ. Let's read the first four verses of James chapter two. James writes, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So again, the setting that G James gives here is not a coffee shop, but it's actually the gathered church, just like we have here this morning. And if this wasn't a, a scenario that had already played itself out in the church, it was one that very likely they would have been tempted with as they continued to gather week by week to worship God. So, so this, the, the, we have two different kind of guests that are coming into what was probably a house church that morning. We have, on the one hand, a rich man. Now, he's described in some very colorful terms this morning. It says that he had gold fingers and wore very shiny clothing. Okay, so not, I don't know how many of you noticed that I had some gold fingers this morning, all right? But I, I saw a couple of you kind of look down at my hand, all right? I had a, had a couple of my friends, like, what on earth? What, what's that, all right? So, so these are actually uh, my championship rings from college, all right? So this is a runner-up ring, 2000, Kentucky Wesleyan College. And uh, this one, this is my favorite, of course, because this is my sophomore year, the year we won it. And you can see a number one right there, all right? KWC Panthers don't play. All right. Now, now I wish I could tell you that I was the leading scorer on that team, you know, that my three-point shooting, you know, carried us to the finals and won it, you know, game winner. All right. But I was primarily uh, the, the guy at the end of the bench. All right. I was waving my towel, you know, giving people high fives coming off the bench. All right. Uh, so that's just the way, that's just the way it was in college at least. All right. But, but, but can you imagine if, 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 
if a man comes in wearing gold rings and, and shiny clothing, comes into our assembly, and, and what were we going to be inclined to do? Hey, man, this guy's loaded, okay? He's probably a pretty important person. Let's get them a seat at the 50-yard line where they can really see nicely and hear very well. And not only will you be most comfortable in that seat, but, but even more importantly than that, you will be honored in the presence of everyone. They will see how important you are when you are ushered in in front of everyone and dropped into the best seat in the house. But then James says there's another guest who stumbles into the church. He doesn't have on the $1,000 suit. He doesn't have shiny fingers and shiny clothes, but he's wearing tattered clothes. In fact, the word that James uses here in the Greek, it, it refers to someone with the most severe form of poverty, someone who is destitute, perhaps almost without any resources to their name. How is this person treated? Hey, hey, you, uh, Mr. Shabby Close, why don't you go stand back over there? You can stand in the corner where you're kind of out of the way. And if you want to be really humiliated, you can come on in and you can sit down at my feet. The lowest place in the room. So perhaps now you can see this scenario why James in the very first verse says this, my brothers show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. See, to show partiality is to receive, it literally means to receive someone according to their face, to receive someone based on their external appearances, to, to, to have external reasons for treating them, giving them preferential treatment over against someone else. And so James says, look, my brothers, this should not be happening in your midst, especially when you come to worship the Lord of glory. So what I, what I want to do this morning, I want to give you four reasons why it is foolish to mix partiality with faith in Jesus. Okay, four reasons why it is foolish to mix partiality with faith in Jesus. Number one, to show partiality is incompatible with the glory of Christ. This is what verse one tells us. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now he says that, that Christians, okay, he calls them brothers. They're in the spiritual family. He says they hold the faith in our Lord Jesus. And you remember the book of James is all about exercising a living faith, an active faith, that there is integrity and authenticity about our lives because we really truly have been changed by Jesus Christ. But not only does he want their faith to be authentic and, and have integrity, but he also wants them to remember that the faith that they hold is faith in the Lord Jesus. And the description that James uses is that he is the Lord of glory. Now, James doesn't say much about Jesus in his letter. We've talked about this. But even from this one verse alone, we cannot miss that James has the highest view of Jesus. 
He uses a, a word that the Old Testament would call Shekinah glory to, the, to refer to the very uh, presence of God, how the glory of God is represented, that it, that it emanates how perfect and how resplendent God is in all of his perfections. He says that is what God is like and that is what Jesus is like because Jesus is God. He is the Lord of glory. So James inserts this descriptor about the glorious Lord, his worth, his honor, his fame, intentionally, I believe, to highlight the connection between Christ being glorious and how they treat one another. You say, well, Tanner, how can you conclude that? Well, if it wasn't intentional, why didn't you just insert it in verse one? James, a servant of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, he should have just came out with it right from the, from the start, right? If, if, if there wasn't a specific connection here about this command to partiality. Now, why is this so important? It is because God is a God who shows no partiality. This is what Romans 2.4 says. And so the way that we glorify him is to also show no partiality when we welcome people into our presence, when we view people out on the streets, in the coffee shop, in the workplaces, down in the common this summer, when, when you run into people, how do you view them? James says, how you view them will directly be related to your view of the glory of Christ. To say, hey, you rich guy, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down on my feet is to show that we do not understand the true nature of glory. Or if we understand it, we have radically failed to display that glory to a watching world. God is glorious. And our greatest privilege in life is to display his glory to others. The glory of God is the goal of all creation. It's where everything is moving. Everything is heading to see the glory of Christ. And so Habakkuk 2.14 says this very clearly. It says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Okay, we live next to the ocean. Okay, you've been on the coast. You've seen the ocean and you've sat on the shore and being able to see how as far as your eye can see, all you see is water, right? Have you ever done this? Well, James says, and, 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 and talking about Jesus that God, is, Jesus is glorious. God is glorious. And, and one day, the glory of God will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. And so the, the congregation moves from glorifying God to focusing on man. And when that happens, the scene is never turns out pretty. We're called to focus on Christ and how glorious he is and let that then permeate all of our human relationships and everything that we do as believers in him. So number one, to show partiality is incompatible with the glory of, the glory of Christ. But then number two, to show partiality is incompatible with our new spiritual vision, okay? Look, look at what he goes on to say at the end of verse four, moving down through verse seven. 
It says, when you do this, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the one who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And so what we see going on here, one of the fundamental flaws, again, is that these, these people in the church were looking at their guest solely based on the external appearances that their physical eyes could see. But what God wants us to realize is that when God makes us new, like Joel and talked about last week and John talked about the week before that, when we are born forth of the word of truth and we have new life in Christ and we become doers of the word, then God gives us not just physical vision to see people from the external appearances, but he gives us spiritual vision by which we look past the externals and we look where God wants us to look, which is at the heart of people. 1 Samuel 16.9, talking about Samuel uh, selecting King David to be the one who sits on the throne of Israel. God says this to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. All of David's brothers who look more kingly than David. He says, don't worry about that. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God wants us to see, not solely with our physical eyes, but he wants us to more importantly look at people from our spiritual eyes. And so what I want you to do is I want you just to, to think about life in Boston, life in our culture. And we know that this is not simply a matter of rich and poor, Okay. Think about other categories by which we judge people. What about beauty? I mean, what, what about getting in shape physically, right? I mean, it's summer after all. I mean, there are all kind of infomercials on, like get in shape and P90 this and T25 that. And, and so, you know, it's like, you know, sun's out, gun's out. You know what I'm saying? We got to get all up in shape, all right? Some of y'all have a T-shirt that says that, but it's in the closet because you haven't worked out in a while. But anyway, uh, so, so. We judge people on the basis of beauty. We judge people on the basis of their educational attainment. Oh yeah, that guy, he went to Harvard. He has his master's from there. Oh, he's getting his PhD, you know, from, from BU, Northeastern, MIT, these prestigious schools that are all around us. Let's not forget about Tufts. That's, in our, that's our school, Medford, all right? So we view people based on these external factors. James says, look, you need to listen up. You need to pay attention because God doesn't view people the way that you view them. It says that, that God has chosen, has he not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? Do you see the irony there? Many times, those who are poor, those who are weak, they are the closest to the kingdom of God. And why is that? It's because a lot of times when we are so loaded with, with physical, material things, we don't see our inner need, our inner poverty, our spiritual poverty. And so God 
wants us to, to, to move past the externals to see that, that the spiritual realities of our soul, that God can take a poor person and display his glory in a unique way because they have nothing. They're not the, the strongest. They're not the, the, the most wealthy, but God can display his glory through them in their weakness. And so the irony here is, is that the material poor were extremely rich in faith. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Though some poor people may not have two coins to rub together, spiritually speaking, they are filthy rich. I mean, if you are in Christ this morning, Forget about your bank account for a moment, okay? I'm talking Bank of America citizen bank. I want you to think about your spiritual bank account. If you are in Christ, it absolutely overflows. There is a super abundance of wealth in your spiritual bank account if you have received Christ as your Lord and Savior. So much so that Paul will blow your mind in 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23, when he says, so let no one boast about men. I mean, the Corinthians had this problem, but it was in a, in a kind of different way. They were all about who could speak the most eloquently. Is it Paul? Is it Apollos? Is it, is it Cephas, Peter? But Paul, Paul's saying, look, who cares about men? What, what are you talking about? Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Do you, do, you, do you see what Paul's saying here? He's saying everything belongs to you. It's all yours because it's all Christ, and you are in Christ. Do you see that? So spiritually speaking, we have absolutely no lack. We are the richest people in the world because of what Christ has done for us. And so James is saying, look, what, why are you so focused on the externals? Why don't you focus on what really matters, not the, the ephemeral, earthly, material things that pass away so quickly like a flower that fades, but look on the spiritual realities that are unfading, that they last forever. James calls us to understand that this is where our focus should be. This is what our spiritual eyes should, should set our gaze upon. And he continues with the, with the rhetorical questions, building his rational arguments. And he says, you know, hey, aren't the rich the ones who oppress you? Aren't, the ones who aren't they the ones who drag you into court? And, and even worse than that, aren't they the ones who blaspheme? In other words, aren't they the ones who insult, revile the name by which you were called, which is the name of Christ. James says, look, you're not even using common sense here. Why would you purposefully put the rich in a great position while you disregard the poor pain? Man, now let me, let me just be very careful here, okay? This is not an indictment of the rich, okay? James is not saying that Christians or non-Christians should not make money and even make as much money as they can within kingdom values, okay? This is an indictment of making distinctions with one person being 
treated differently than the other. What I love about this passage actually is that it shows that in the worshiping congregation, there were both the rich and the poor. And this is what we want to see happen at Redemption Hill. We want to see people from all different socioeconomic incomes. It doesn't matter if you're making six figures and one of the wealthiest people in our city or if you are one of the poorest people. The message is you are welcome here in our church because we, at the end of the day, don't really care about that anyway. What we care about is your soul and we want to make sure that your soul is taken care of and relating to God. And so it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor or somewhere in between. This is about the gospel. And the gospel shatters this kind of mentality that would say one person is more important than the other because of their social status. In fact, what we love about the gospel, if you go back and read Ephesians 2, which I would recommend, is that the gospel takes the Jew and the Gentile and brings them together so that they're so united that Paul would say, hey, they're not two people anymore, but they're one man. God has made one man out of the two. That's exactly what the text says. So we can apply that however you want. Rich, poor, they're no longer two people, but they're one man because they are one in Christ. Jesus is what's most important about us. It's not how much money's in the bank. It's not how we look, how beautiful we are. It's not our educational attainment. It's the fact that we stand in the righteousness of Christ, that he has bought us with a price, that he has made us new people. He has given us his grace, mercy, and love so that now we are totally changed from the inside out. And now as he has given us his mercy, we want to distribute his mercy to all kinds of people, no matter what they may look like. So to show partiality, is incompatible with our new spiritual vision in Christ. But then James continues his argument in verse eight, and he says this, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So let's break down verse eight together. Paul, I mean, James, I've been talking about Paul. You're talking about James again. James speaks of the royal law. This royal law, Joel explained the last week, this is the, the Old Testament law as it is fulfilled and interpreted by Christ. And so it is, it is the law that is given by the king that gives us the ethics of the kingdom. And as, as we saw in Matthew 22, Jesus quotes not only Deuteronomy 6, the greatest commandment to love the Lord our God with everything we have, but he also quotes Leviticus 19 verse 18, which is what we have here in verse 8 to love our neighbor as our self. So this kingdom ethic of love tells us, number one, who we should love, but then it also tells us how we should love. So let's tackle those two realities. Number one, the royal law calls us to love everyone. 
This is, this is who we should love. So again, I want you to think about when you leave this place today and you go have a good time on this beautiful day and when you punch into work in the morning and when you are hanging out with your friends or family through the week, every person, okay, just, just pause and let that soak in because I know like I say a lot of stuff up here and you kind of take in as much as you can, but, but just take in those two words, every person that you set your eyes on is someone whom God has called you to love as you love yourself. There is no one exempt from the call to love our neighbor as ourselves. In fact, this is what Jesus told us in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Everybody talks about being a Good Samaritan, and we reduce that passage to, hey, be a nice person, do some good deeds. That's not what the primary point of the parable was about, because Jesus was actually answering the question, what is the greatest commandment that we just read from Matthew and Luke? And he says the exact same thing. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. And so the lawyer who was interrogating Jesus says, well, I want to justify myself, so let me ask you another question, Jesus. Who is my neighbor? And to answer that question, Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, and he says, your neighbor is anyone you see who has a need in front of you. You got that? The point of the parable of the Good Samaritan is to be a neighbor and to be a neighbor to whoever it is that you come in contact with. That's why he chooses a Samaritan to help a Jew. He, he breaks down the social and cultural barriers to say, look, your neighbor is whoever your eyes are set upon. I hope we'll apply that as a church. I mean, what, what happens if the love of Christ so fills our hearts that wherever we go, not just on Sunday mornings, but wherever we go, we're living a life of love. I mean, I'm telling you, the, the, the world will take notice. It's hard to argue. Okay, we can argue, you know, this argument and that argument, and there are a lot of questions that the Bible has answers for, okay? But, but, but you know what? It's really difficult to argue with love. Just, just try it sometime, right? You're going to lose, all right? It's supposed to be funny. All right. So the royal law causes us to love everyone, and the royal law causes us to love everyone selflessly. I want you to think about this. The, 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 at the root of partiality is this underlying question of what's in it for me. You see that? hey, I'm going to treat this, this rich person, you know, kind of nicely because there might be some kind of kickbacks here. Or, you know, I might be esteemed as I'm esteeming him. You know, people kind of see, hey, I'm associated. You know, I'm in kind of their posse or whatever. So, you know, it, it, usually we show preferential treatment because we, we think maybe there's something that will come back to me in this, you know, transaction. That's why it is difficult or we meet natural resistance when we have opportunities to help the poor because the poor in a material sense have nothing to offer us. 
But this is, again, where the gospel calls us to love selflessly. Jesus didn't die for people that were lovely, but Jesus died for his enemies, people who had nothing to offer him. And so the royal law is a law that calls us to love selflessly. And and in verses 9 through 11, James explains the ramifications for failing to love our neighbor. We would do well to take note of what it says. It says basically that if you fail to love your neighbor as yourself, you are committing sin and have become a transgressor. In other words, a transgression is crossing the line of God's intention for your life. And so you say, man, I'm kind of a good person. You know, I do the X, Y, and Z. And, and, and James says, look, if you've broken one of God's laws, you have become a lawbreaker. It is simple as that which shows you you are in need of mercy because when someone stands before the judge and they're guilty, what they need in that moment is mercy. So the call is to keep all of God's commands because God's commands reflect his holy character. So when we show partiality, we we are actually undercutting or undermining our pursuit of holiness, to be more like Christ, to be doers of the word of God. And this is then the connection between our passage and verse 27 of chapter one. What What does James say about religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father? He says it's this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Do you see that? The weak those who can't probably help you, the marginalized in society, he says, you should have an eye for these people. You should visit them. You should care for them. You should love them. And now he's talking about more people like that in James chapter two, verses one through 13, the poor. But then not only that, he says, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So showing partiality is one way that we are stained by the world, that we allow the the worldly influences in our life to expose the sinfulness that is in our hearts. And James says, look, if you want to be a pure and undefiled person before God, you should care about those around you. You should love those around you, and you should live a pristine life to the glory of God. Finally, reason number four, to show partiality is incompatible with the mercy and judgment of God. This is what we see in verses 12 through 13. In light of being accountable for all of the law, James says we should live in such a way that we are anticipating the coming judgment of God. Now, I hope that you'll tune in with me uh, for a moment because I believe this is an area where most Christians have a severely deficient theology. We think that because God is so gracious and Jesus died on the cross for our sins that we will not face judgment. That is heresy. That's false teaching, okay? We all will stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, listen, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's Romans 8, 1. In other words, we cannot be condemned, sentenced to eternal death for our sin, but no condemnation does not equal no judgment. Over and over and over again, not only Jesus in the Gospels, but the, but the, the letters of, of the epistles in the New Testament are going to say, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of, 
of Christ, to receive uh, judgment, reward for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. So we will be judged for how we live our lives. And James then says, so then speak and act, verse 12, as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. I mean, do you see the very practical terms that he uses? Speak and act. This is the very details of our daily living. As those who will give an answer for the things that we say and the actions that we take. And why is this so important? Well, he says in verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. So a couple of truths here about the judgment of God. Number one, when we stand before God, one thing that he is going to say to us is, look, when you foolishly chose to go your own way, you were actually rejecting the path of freedom and life. Why does James say it again and again? He calls it the law of liberty. At the end of chapter one, he calls it the law of liberty. In chapter two, I believe he says it again before the letter's over. The law of liberty. In other words, all of God's commands are given to us that we might walk in the path of freedom and experience the life that he came to give. Whenever we break God's commands, even though we think that it's giving us life, it actually is the path of destruction and bondage. So God's commands are for our good. God's commands are for life and freedom. So when we stand before him one day, he's not gonna, we're not gonna be able to say, God, you were such a harsh taskmaster and you asked me to do so many things. You were so unfair. He's gonna say, that was the law of liberty. I gave it to you for your good. But then number two, it says mercy Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. In other words, if we consistently fail to show no mercy to those around us, we reveal that we never experience God's mercy in the first place. You see, those who have been changed by the gospel, those who have received the love of God, are those who are going to love God and love others in return. Those who have received the mercy of God are gonna be those who want to extend mercy to those around them. So let me ask you this morning, if you are not confident that when you stand before God one day, that he will accept you into his eternal presence where there is great and eternal joy, then I want to ask you, what is holding you back from receiving the grace of God in Christ and following Jesus with your life. Because while there is judgment for, for those who show no mercy, the gospel brings better news, and it's contained in the four words that end our passage. Memorize these words. They're so good. It says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In other words, because Christ, in his mercy died for us when we did not deserve it. We will not have to receive the judgment of God because Christ was judged for us. Jesus took the judgment and the wrath and the condemnation that Tanner Turley deserved on the cross so that now I'm going free, man, and I did not deserve to go free. And I hope you can say the same today.
that you've received the grace of God in Christ, that you are trusting not in your own work, but in the righteousness of Christ. And you can proclaim with James that mercy triumphs over judgment. Is that your testimony today? If that is your testimony, then I am confident that we will become a church that displays the mercy of Christ because we've received the mercy of Christ and we will be a church that, that, that is showing no partiality. I had a vision as I was uh, looking at this text and studying this text. I, I saw this, this sign, okay? This is very simple. I'm not trying to be too mystical here, but as I was seeing this word, no partiality, it's really simple to see how I came up with this sign right here, okay? No partiality, all right? I made this myself, all right? Thank you. All right, so, so, so what I saw was this sign, all right? I don't have a master's in graphic design. Um, this sign over the entrance of our church. Now, that would be difficult because we don't even own this building, but kind of metaphorically speaking, I'm seeing this sign that is, that is on the doors of our church so that every time we come in here, we love all people. We're not showing partiality based on how someone is dressed or the color of their skin or where they come from, even if they live in Malden, you know what I'm saying? Our rivals, we love you. Okay, we, we, if you, some of you are from Malden and we love you because we have Jesus in our heart, you know what I'm saying? So, so the love of Christ, no partiality. But, but how will this vision be accomplished? This vision will be accomplished not because there is any kind of sign on the doors of our church, but this vision will be accomplished where the glory of Christ is upheld as preeminent, where we see with God's vision, not our own vision, where we love our neighbor as ourselves, Love is constantly filling the room and we're extending mercy. This vision will be fulfilled, that kind of vision, when the sign is not over the doors of our church, but when this sign is over every human heart that walks into this place because that is where mercy begins. It begins when we have the love of Christ filling us so much that we love all people with the greatest liberality because that is how God has loved us. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for this text, and we're grateful that your mercy triumphs over judgment. And so, God, we just confess that apart from your grace, we will create distinctions in our hearts. We will give preferential treatment probably to people who look like us and talk like us, and so, God, I pray that, that each person here will have the heart of Jesus and we will begin to love people like you have called us to love them. And, Father, of course, I pray for everyone who has yet to experience your mercy, Lord, that they would cry out to you today, that they would trust not in their, their own goodness because we have none apart from your grace, but they would trust in the righteousness of Christ and find salvation in him. This is our prayer. Through Christ we pray. Amen.